Good morning, everyone. As, as Father Edward mentioned, I am simply going to be reading a conference that, uh, that Father Pryor composed and uh, uh, prepared for me to deliver. I'm happy to take questions at the end, but obviously I won't be speaking uh, on, on his behalf. Um, I can only speak on my own behalf and out of my own experience and knowledge, which is, which is different from his. This is a conference entitled, Consolations in Difficult Times. May you live in interesting times. While the Chinese origin of this saying is doubtful, what cannot be doubted is that our times are quite interesting. Much of the interest derives from an unwholesome cultural instability generated by past failures and threatening future upheavals. Another fact that cannot be doubted is that many people today are anxious, even desolate. Suicide rates are on the rise, as are other indicators of decline, such as drug use. Institutions that used to provide a sense of security have been under attack from outside and, sadly, from within. Confidence in government is low, and scandals continue to rock the institutional church. If there were ever need for consolation, the present time would seem to provide the perfect setting for such a meditation. And yet, we should notice that precisely much of our angst is the product of an unwillingness to accept the consolations that are all around us. Why do I say this? First, we should notice that our situation, while unique in many ways, has abundant parallels in other eras. In fact, we find treatises and essays on consolation composed by such eminent thinkers as Cicero, Seneca, Boethius, and others. These were in response to cultural decay not unlike our own. What separates us to a certain extent is our unwillingness to accept consolation as an antidote to anxiety. We have become activists. When the evils of the age wax powerful, our first instinct is not to think. Recently, whenever there's been a mass shooting, Facebook pundits have taken to sharing memes that say, thoughts and prayers are not enough. We need policy. Now, it is quite possible, even probable, that a politician tweeting out that his or her thoughts and prayers are with the victims of evil is a form of virtue signaling, a cost-free way to appear concerned. <coughs> but in calling the sincerity of such knee-jerk compassion into question, we should avoid the polarized opposite of condemning thinking and praying. I would say that we need a good deal of thinking and praying. Since when has heedless, thoughtless action been considered virtuous? Action should be deliberate, which is to say, done after weighing the reasons for and against. Deliberation is part of the virtue of prudence. Those who would ridicule thoughts and prayers should be aware that this scorn is often at the service not of well-reasoned 
uh, position, but of a fearful reactivity that is unwilling to gather evidence for and against a position. Now let me return to the idea of consolation. The root of this word is the Latin word sol, which is sun, and by extension, light. To be consoled is to receive illumination in one's mind and heart so as not to lose hope. The opposite is the deprivation of inner light, and that we call desolation. The terms are especially important in Ignatian discernment. According to St. Ignatius, one should never deliberate and choose an action when in desolation. This is particularly true when one is in a state of grace. Practically speaking, this means that good discernment and decision-making for us as Christians requires consolation. Acting out of anger, fear, anxiety, or depression will only make the situation worse. In what follows, I would like to offer several sources of consolation that should be a routine part of our own deliberations and actions. Before I begin, let me note one last important point, and that is the role of asceticism in deriving proper consolation. A couple of years ago, I gave a talk to college and graduate students on the vice of acedia. I mentioned that a sign of acedia is the prevalence of behaviors like binge-watching television series. This example produced visible discomfort among the students who clearly stood accused unintentionally by my words. My purpose was not to induce guilty feelings, which themselves will likely lead us only to more desolation. It is to note that we do seek consolation when under stress. We just don't call it that because for some reason the concept of consolation implies a kind of weakness or reliance on external factors in our lives. Let me list some of the ersatz forms of consolation. In addition to binge watching, which I have already mentioned, we have drug use, pornography, social media use, gluttonous cravings for rich-tasting foods and fancy alcoholic drinks, Sports. Decades ago, Neil Postman wrote about us entertaining ourselves to death. That this is a form of false consolation, I would suggest, is indisputable. Why do we give ourselves a pass on these activities but shun genuine consolation? I suspect that it is because our consumer ideology makes it appear that we are active in choosing faux consolations rather than resignedly and passively accepting mere ideas of consolation. Sometimes consolation, as well as entertainment, is derided as quote-unquote escapism. This is too strong a term, in my opinion though it applies more accurately to false consolations. Whether we snack on overly flavored chips, drink triple-strength IPAs, spend an afternoon watching YouTube fail videos, or 
pray, what we are legitimately seeking is not precisely escape, but the correct perspective and distance from our problems so that we may assess them from a place of calm rationality. The place of asceticism is to temper the pleasures of the flesh, even mortify them, and gradually learn to take pleasure and consolation in the things of the spirit. It is well worth noting that in ancient monastic spirituality, this discernment between things of the flesh and of the spirit takes place at the level of the thoughts. Before I can get my daily outrage on social media, I must have the thought of anger or of pride or acedia somewhere in my heart. I can imagine that I innocently log on and just happen to see things that get me angry and upset. But in fact, a part of me wanted some pretense for self-righteous anger before I acted. In the same way, we should investigate whether our activism is a way of disguising certain thought patterns from ourselves. We can change these thought patterns by substituting salutary thoughts, starting with the word of God. If by the word of God, I am able to loosen the hold of fear and anger on my heart, I might choose to go for a walk or to read a good novel rather than surf the net. Many of the calls to action in our world concern issues that we are not likely to influence much. What we can influence more than anything else is our own thinking. <coughs> so why not actively choose to meditate on what truly consoles? I invite you to this change of heart in what follows in the rest of my essay. Keep in mind that these consolations are not meant to be exhaustive. These are the aspects of our faith that I find most helpful, and I hope that you do too. First, scripture. Thought drives out thought. This is a central principle of monastic spirituality as initiated by Origen and Evagrius. What we tend to forget about Evagrius especially is that his entire worldview derived from an intense engagement with Holy Scripture. Translations of his more abstract works are readily available in English, but his longest works are exegetical. That is to say, he first absorbed the word of God, and this is what formed the background of his systematic spirituality. Thomas Akempis, in his influential imitation of Christ, laments the dissipating effects of worldly talk and speaks about how he never comes away from reading the Bible without feeling enriched, comforted, clear in his goals. We live in a time of unprecedented access to God's word. We have inexpensive versions of the Bible, study guides readily available for free online. If we suffer anything like a famine for God's word, it is simply a function of our prioritizing other things. Ten minutes with the Gospels, close listening to the Psalms at the office, a line or two from Proverbs or the letters of Paul, 
An afternoon spent closely reading the life of King David or Elijah? What better way is there to gain a spiritual perspective on our situation and to be reassured of God's nearness? To quote another saint, We practice the constant reading of Scripture so as to obtain a spiritual point of view. That's one of St. Benedict's principal influences, the disciple of Evagrius, St. John Cashin. The second consolation is tradition. Here's another quote from a saint, this one, uh, Thomas More. Comfort in tribulation can be secured only on the sure ground of faith, holding as true the words of Scripture and the teaching of the Catholic Church. Many Catholics are anxious today precisely because we fear that somehow the teaching of the Church is under attack. There is no better way to meet this problem than by learning the teaching for oneself. We are blessed with an excellent catechism, with copious references to council documents, encyclicals, and the writings of the fathers and other theologians. But I don't necessarily want this meditation on consolation to suggest any kind of Pelagianism. So let me rephrase this. What should be a consolation to us is not that we know the tradition. It is probably enough for us to know the creed and to know a trusted priest religious or theologian whom we can ask about normal doubts and puzzlements. The bigger point I want to make here is that the Church's tradition is a massive and therefore highly stable assemblage of teachings, interpretations, both written and lived. If our present circumstances worry you, make friends with the saints of the past. This leads me to my third consolation. The saints. So often when commentators talk about the church, they mean only the present institutional church. This is not only problematic sociologically, it is theologically totally incorrect. The church, the body of Christ, is made up of all the baptized, including those in the prison of Hades to whom Christ preached in the Spirit. This from First. <coughs> 1 Peter 3.19. For all we know, the church now includes the billions of souls of persons who lived before Christ, but who, like Abraham, are alive now because of Christ's death. The saints are near us, are praying for us, are seeking our friendship. When I think of them, I feel myself inflamed by a tremendous yearning says St. Bernard of Clairvaux, himself now among their ranks. He continues, We must set our minds on the things of heaven. Let us long for those saints who are longing for us, and ask those who look for our coming to intercede for us. With such friends, belonging to such a great cloud of witnesses, what harm can come to us? Natural contemplation. Let me move in a different direction for a moment. For me, natural contemplation is a great source of consolation. 
What is natural contemplation? It is the practice of seeing all of God's creatures through the Logos, the Word of God, through whom these creatures were created and in whom they continue to receive their existence. God communicates through his creatures, and if we receive them in wonder and gratitude, they can teach us a wealth of truth about God's love and fidelity. The very fact that anything at all exists is a marvel, a source of endless mystery and wonder. But then, there is the sheer wealth of abundance in stars, elements, minerals, plants, animals, human cultures. And each of these different creatures speaks of God. The cross was made of wood. Stone provides material for the altars upon which we offer sacrifice. Water washes our bodies, but in baptism also our souls. Grain, by the ingenuity of human labor, becomes bread that becomes Christ's body. Animals teach us about innocence and display remarkable cleverness by their native intelligence. Lions speak of authority, horses of power and nobility, mules of dogged perseverance, eagles of freedom, dogs of faithfulness, ants of industry, the stars of the saints, the sun of glory, the moon of chastity. The fact that the world follows a very regular course, alternating day and night, moving through the seasons of the year, is evidence of God's fidelity. We tend to think of the laws of nature operating apart from God, but this is simply not true. The laws are of his making, and traditionally, they are upheld by angelic powers. One of the subtle temptations of an overly scientific worldview is that we become fearful of the world falling apart, and we feel completely responsible for it. Think how much anxiety comes from worrying about global warming, overpopulation, deforestation, asteroids, and the like. An American congresswoman claims that she can't sleep because she's so worried about global warming. But the earth belongs to God, and he has preserved it for billions of years. <coughs> what a consolation it is to remember that God is much more powerful than greenhouse gases. All will happen according to his plan. We can cooperate by faith or oppose it by our own willfulness. And much willfulness comes from forgetting that God is the creator and governor of the earth, and he knows better than we how all of the laws of nature work together for our good. If God cares so much about his creatures, as our Lord reminds us, how can he not care for us? Do not be anxious. You are worth more than sparrows or flowers or any other creature. God is not far and wishes only that we seek his love and truth in all things. And we seek this relationship in the familiar practice and consoling practice 
of prayer. By prayer, I certainly mean every form available to us, but I am hoping to encourage you again and again to choose a life centered in prayerfulness, reflection, recollection, a life centered in Christ's mysterious presence. It is important to pray as best we can and to make the time to pray well. But we can also receive a great deal of consolation by learning to pray short prayers throughout the day. Here are some that I use. I will bless the Lord at all times. Amen. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Let this be my prayer to you. I try to pray this before starting a task. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Change my heart. If you can make a habit of praying the rosary, this is a most efficacious way to become more and more immersed in the mysteries of Christ and to learn them under Our Lady's tutelage. During the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, we repeatedly speak of Mary as crushing the head of the devil. Thoughts of fear and anxiety often stem from demonic temptation. Don't forget the mother who loves you. Most importantly, learn to pray as you can rather than as you ought. Or to use another cliche, don't let the best be the enemy of the good. In other words, it is better to pray a little bit when you have time rather than to wait until you feel you have sufficient time to pray a lot. The first steps to prayer are often the hardest, so don't wait. Just start praying where you are. God wants to hear from you and wishes to speak to you consoling words in the heart. The next consolation is incarnation. Let me skip over now to what we might consider more properly theological. One of the greatest consolations for me is the Incarnation. God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. Jesus took flesh of the Virgin Mary and lived as one of us. This is the nobility of the human race. We are now akin to God, not only as spiritual beings, but as flesh. All of the little things that go with being human can now be sanctifying. Christ willed to experience eating, sleeping, working, being in a family, being with friends, encountering opposition, being hungry and tired, going to weddings, cooking, washing feet. God loves the human project so much that he wishes to be a part of it from the inside going so far as to go through all the stages of growth from infancy through childhood and adolescence to adulthood. None of our experiences is foreign to Christ, our brother. 
The church is the extension of the incarnation. This means that Christ's body is mysteriously within us. We are his members, and the baptized whom we meet share this distinction with us. When we read in the media about, quote-unquote, the Catholic Church, the reporters almost always mean only the hierarchy. They may include religious as well, but in any case, the Church is seen as a kind of service organization. The laity can choose to avail themselves of the services of this Church or that. But this is not Catholic theology. The Church is not the hierarchy. It's all of us. Any of us at any time can choose to grow in holiness and change the tenor of the Church because we are all responsible for being the best member we can be. We don't have to wait until Sunday Mass. This is one of my most important points. We as Catholics used to look more to the hierarchy for consolation and guidance. In the past century, we have tended, in my opinion, to overemphasize the Pope as the source of consolation. I don't mean the papacy here, though I think we overemphasize that too. I mean the Pope as a particular teacher of talent and goodness. Catholics in previous centuries were perfectly aware that popes can be dull, politically compromised, fearful, lazy. It is necessary that we have a pope. He's a member of the church with a particular function. It is not necessary that he fulfill that function well. A great deal of anxiety arises because we have discovered that there is real corruption in the hierarchy. But this anxiety can turn to consolation when we remember that we are not Donatists. Let me explain. Donatism is a heresy that claims that the efficacy of the sacraments depends on the virtue of the clergy. In other words, if your priest is a sinner, then the Eucharist that he celebrates is no longer valid. St. Augustine definitively refuted this heresy in the early 5th century. Augustine said that the power of the sacraments comes from God and not from men's goodness or virtue. God acts through the church, so we do not need a validly ordained... Pardon. So we do need a validly ordained man following the approved rites of the church, but we do not, strictly speaking, need him to be good. In fact, most priests are not saints yet, but they are still priests nonetheless. And God mysteriously continues to work through broken earthen vessels. The sacraments. The sacraments themselves are sources of consolation. Certainly, the Eucharist has pride of place here. Christ feeds us with his own body and blood, and our souls are strengthened by this supernatural food. Christ is fully present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. 
Just as important is the sacrament of baptism, by which we were claimed once and for all to be God's special possession. We reinvigorate that baptismal grace every time we go to confession, and so we do not have to fret when we sin. We simply should we, we should simply and straightforwardly admit our guilt and call to mind God's mercy, learn from our mistakes, and grow in humility and holiness through the sacraments. Now, these last few are brief. The cross. What looks like failure can be sanctifying can be our gateway into heavenly peace. The world valorizes success, and we can become glum when we don't partake of this success. Christianity, according to Ted Turner, is for losers. He's actually right. We we worship a man whom the world's power regarded with little concern or fear. But rather than take things into his own hands, He trusted in the power of God in the Spirit and turned death into life. This, of course, leads to the resurrection. Death is not the end. Whatever troubles face us, God has promised that he will raise us up with Christ on the last day. The Holy Spirit. He is the consoler par excellence. The Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts and helps us to see things from a spiritual point of view rather than from the point of view of the flesh. To a certain extent, all other consolations derive from the presence and action of the Holy Spirit. For no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit allows us to see the reality of the sacraments behind their appearance to our senses. When we pray, we have already been moved by the Spirit, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit prays within us. When our hearts accuse us, the Spirit is our advocate, and he is greater than our hearts. Heaven. Whatever our struggles here, our destination is heaven, a place where every tear will be wiped away and we will be at peace with God and with one another. And finally, Our Lady of Consolation. I have already mentioned Our Lady, but it is always a good practice to end a meditation with a reminder of her role in our lives. One of her titles is Our Lady of Consolation, for she desires our consolation and models it in her own life. Her life was a difficult one in many ways. A suspicious set of circumstances surrounding the birth of her only son, who died young. Exile in Egypt as a very young mother. 
having much of the rest of the extended family reject Jesus, watching her son being arrested, falsely accused, beaten and whipped and mocked, and finally brutally crucified and killed. In all of this, her faith and hope never wavered. Her consolation came from loving God and from desiring that his will be done. Let it be done to me according to your word. Saturday is traditionally Mary's day because on Holy Saturday, when all of the apostles had fled and were doubting, she held firm to the belief that God's plan would be vindicated. And so let us invoke the prayers of Our Lady of Consolation uh, that she may lead us to Christ in glory where together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Consoler, he lives and reigns, one God, world without end. Amen.